Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. It's the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call and I briefly lost my identity today. That's a little bit scary. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and of course the Twitter and the uh, Instagram and the Facebook page, which you can find over there at facebook.com slash how good it is pod oh and do i have a good trivia question for ye today there are two songs only two that i know of that was recorded by the beatles and bob dylan and elvis presley those three artists didn't have a lot of overlap between any two of them but there are two songs that all three of them had in common What songs were those? I will have the answer to that question near the end of the show. So, this time around, we are looking at songs that were inspired by literary works, and this is another one of those shows that could easily turn into a whole series of programs, and probably will, much like the shows about cover songs. So, naturally, I'm just going to concentrate on a few today, and we'll probably revisit this topic every now and again. Okay? We good? Cool. Let's go. All right, let's start with the obvious thing. Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult is not about suicide, but it's rather about accepting the inevitability of death. But there is a verse that clearly makes a literary reference specifically about Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Now, in the play... Romeo swallows poison because he thinks Juliet is dead. Juliet sees his body, and she responds by stabbing herself with his dagger. And this is what brought people to the conclusion that the song is about suicide. But songwriter Buck Dharma has said that it's about two people who had faith that they would be together after they died. The Buggle song Video Killed the Radio Star is known these days as the answer to the trivia question, what was the first song played on MTV? But while the song is generally about the state of the radio industry, comparing the eh, 1960s to the late 1970s, but according to co-writer Trevor Horn, the original inspiration for this song was a science fiction story from 1960. The story is called The Sound Sweep, and it was written by British author J.G. Ballard for Science Fantasy Magazine's February 1960 issue. In the story, a mute boy is vacuuming up stray sounds in a world without music. Music has been rendered obsolete because of advances in technology called ultrasound music. The boy meets and befriends a destitute opera singer who was living in an abandoned uh, recording studio. 
I'm not going to spoil the ending for you, but I have found a link to the story on the web, and you can read for yourself. So you can find that over at howgooditis.com. And as for what it's worth, the song was out for over a year when the video began appearing on MTV. And by that time, Trevor Horn was playing with the band Yes, and it took him a while to figure out why young kids were recognizing him. All right, The Inner Light was the last of the Beatles songs that George wrote, which had a heavy Indian influence, and it's his first song to appear on a single as the B-side to Lady Madonna. Now, George had originally recorded this during sessions for the Wonderwall soundtrack, and as a result, none of the musicians on the track are Beatles. Instead, they're all Indian musician sessions hired for the album by EMI Studios in Bombay, which is now called Mumbai. After that recording, George brought the tapes back to London, where he laid down the vocal track, and he got Paul and John to sing some backup harmonies. Now, according to George's autobiography, I, Me, Mine, Shortly before the Beatles went to India to study transcendental meditation with the Maharishi, George met with a Sanskrit scholar from Cambridge University named Juan Mascaro, who followed up that meeting with a copy of his book called Lamps of Fire. Lamps of Fire was, uh, it was an anthology of religious writings, and Mascaro specifically suggested that a poem on a certain page would make for a good song. The poem comes from the Tao Te Ching, which goes back to the 4th century BCE, and was written by Lao Zi or Lao Tzu. George made a few minor changes to the translation to make the whole thing more inclusive, and frankly to make the song a little bit longer. And, if you're a fan of Star Trek, you'll remember that there's a Next Generation episode from 1992 called The Inner Light. And while the song doesn't appear in the episode, show writer Morgan Gendel has acknowledged that the title is homage to George's song. He was originally going to name all of the Star Trek episodes that he wrote after a Beatles song, but this was the only one out of the four that he wrote whose title didn't change from concept to screen. Now, Ray Bradbury's books and short stories have inspired a number of different songs, but... One story in particular was the inspiration for two different songs, and in that respect, they're actually related to one another. See, Bradbury wrote a series of stories that didn't quite have a common thread, so when he collected them into a single volume, he used a tattooed man as the framing device that tied them together. That book was called The Illustrated Man, and The Illustrated Man himself was a person with tattoos all over his body, and each tattoo animates itself into a different story. Now, let me take you over to a little-remembered band by the name of Pearls Before Swine. Pearls Before Swine's uh, musical style is probably best described as psychedelic folk, and they were led by a guy named Tom Rapp, who grew up near Cape Canaveral in Florida, where he liked to go and watch the rockets taking off in the 1960s. On the day that Apollo 11 took off for the moon, Rapp was inspired by both the moonshot and Ray Bradbury's story that he wrote a song called Rocket Man. My father was a rocket man He often went to Jupiter or Mercury To Venus or to Mars My mother and I would watch the sky And wonder if a falling star Was a ship becoming ashes With a rocket man inside their album containing that song was titled The Use of Ashes, and it came out the following year, 1970. 
And that song, in turn, inspired Bernie Taupin to write his own Rocket Man song. Same title, same overall thrust, you should excuse the expression, but the song's storyline maybe hues a little bit closer to the Bradbury short story. Rocket Man. You see, in, in Bradbury's story, astronauts are kind of a rare bird, so they work when they want to, and they get a lot of money for it. One of these rocket men tends to work in space for about three months at a time, and then he comes home to his wife and his 14-year-old son, whose name is Doug. But he only stays home for about three days before he gets that itch to go back out into space. Doug also wants to be a rocket man, but he's starting to pick up on the fact that it's really putting a strain on his parents. The father has tried to quit the job several times, but the lure of space is just too much. Finally, he decides he's making his last trip, but before he does, he makes Doug promise not to become a rocket man. And again, I won't spoil the ending, but I'll link to a version you can read. This version has a few scanning errors, but you should be okay. But Elton John's version of the song has a little more of that longing for the space-faring life, and it's got what I consider to be one of the better opening lines of a pop song. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight Zero hour, 9 a.m. I don't know why, but that couplet just knocks me out. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. Anyway, uh, Bernie Taupin was accused of ripping off David Bowie's space oddity for this song, but Taupin has always said that, no, he was ripping off Tom Rapp. Okay, now this one has a controversial history attached to it. The Cure's uh, first single was this one, titled Killing an Arab, and it's from their album, Boys Don't Cry. It met with some controversy when it first got airplay on the college radio stations, and in 1986, a student DJ on the Princeton radio station did a huge racist chat before playing the song. But here's the thing, if you actually listen to the song, you realize that, well, first, the whole song is about alienation and the emptiness of life, because, second, Robert Smith wrote the song because he was trying to encapsulate a scene from Albert Camus' book, The Stranger, which involves the book's narrator killing an Arab on a beach. Ultimately, the character is condemned for being honest about the way he feels, which the way he feels is empty. There's no guilt and no remorse. He can't articulate any better reason for killing the man other than he was overwhelmed by the heat and the bright uh, sunlight out there on the beach. But after the big to-do in 1986, The Cure had to change the lyrics for some performances, singing instead, kissing an Arab, which makes a whole lot of sense. Or occasionally Robert Smith would have a conversation with people before the show if they were opposed to the song being played at all, and sometimes he was able to talk them into understanding the meaning of the song and be allowed to play it. Now, when The Cure released their first singles compilation, Standing on the Beach, and its video companion, Staring at the Sea, two titles that also come from Camus' The Stranger, well, rather than omitting the song from, his, from the collections, 
the band compromised by putting a sticker on the packaging, advising against racist use of the song. In addition, Electra Records requested that radio stations stop playing the song altogether. But of course, discussion of the song reared its head again during the Gulf War of the early 90s and again after 9-11. All right, I think we need to cleanse our palates a little bit here. Eric Carmen was one of the founding members of the Raspberries. And in this song, Go All The Way, he's clearly trying to talk a girl into having sex with him. Now, this song has a dual inspiration as the stories go. The first was watching Mick Jagger sing Let's Spend the Night Together on the Ed Sullivan Show. And as you might recall from my interview with Christopher McKittrick, when you watch the video of that performance, you can see that Mick Jagger had to change the song's lyrics to Let's Spend Some Time Together. And while he's complying with the request, well, Mick is also literally rolling his eyes so hard that he can probably see his own brains. Carmen wanted to write a song with a sexually explicit lyric that he couldn't be pinned down for. And around that same time, he came across a book called Going All the Way by Dan Wakefield. Now, Going All the Way is a book set in the mid-1950s, which involves a couple of young Korean War veterans coming back to their hometown and basically trying to have sex with some girl, any girl. When Carmen saw the book title, he knew he had the lyrical hook for a song. Going All the Way was turned into a uh, 1997 movie starring Jeremy Davies and Ben Affleck, and it got mixed reviews at best. But the book, oh, the book has always gotten lots of good press, so there's that. And yeah, you can go find it in your Amazon if you want. All right, and now it is time to answer today's trivia question. Uh, Back on page two, I asked you to identify the two songs that were recorded by the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Elvis Presley, all three of them. Okay, now the first one I cheated on a little bit, and I'll tell you why. Elvis recorded That's Alright Mama in 1954, kind of on a lark. It was like, you know, they were just kind of goofing around in the studio, and uh, Sam Phillips said, oh, wait, 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 we got to record this one. Uh, but it sold enough copies in the Memphis area to appear on the local charts, although it did not chart na- nationally. Papa done told me Here's next up, Bob Dylan. He recorded the song for his 1963 album, The Freewheelin' Bob Dylan. What? I don't remember that being on The Freewheelin' Bob Dylan. No, it wasn't. The track got cut from the final release, supposedly because it wasn't good enough, but I suspect a couple of things. First, that it was also because it wasn't an original Dylan composition, as all of the other tracks on the album were, with the exception of Karina Karina, which is in the public domain. Um... But it's also, you know, too similar to another song on the album, in title-wise. It did turn up on the 50th anniversary collection, which was released in Europe, specifically to keep Dylan's recordings from passing into the public domain. So, there is an existing Dylan recording of That's Alright Mama. And finally, there would be the Beatles, who performed the song in July 1963. 
They recorded this for the BBC for a show called Pop Goes the Beatles, which aired a couple of weeks later. The Fab Four have been performing the song since they were doing skiffle music as the quarrymen, and Paul is so clearly imitating Elvis that it's kind of hard to tell. It's not Elvis unless you listen really closely. when he gets into those shouts that I can oh yeah that is Paul isn't it alright here's the other song and we'll take the artist in reverse order this time and it's a little less cheaty too yesterday all my troubles seem so far away the Beatles released yesterday as a single in September of 1965 and it went to number one here in the US and a few other nations but not in the UK because it was not released in the UK as a single, uh, because the other three Beatles vetoed its release there because they didn't appear on it. But of course, the song was already on the Help album, which had been released a few weeks earlier, and other artists began covering it almost immediately, including Bob Dylan. All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Yesterday. In 1970, Bob Dylan cut some tracks that collectively are known as Almost Went to See Elvis, which was released in 1997, largely because there were so many bootleg versions out there. And one of the backup singers on this track was George Harrison. And around that same time, in February of 1970, Elvis recorded his shows at the International Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, and released it as an album with the simple title, On Stage. The album cover is notable in that it only has the words On Stage in Elvis's picture, but his name doesn't appear in print anywhere on the cover. But here's a little bit of uh, Elvis's version, which came out later that year. My version of... Yesterday All my troubles seem so far and by the way, we just talked about the song Proud Mary a couple of episodes back. The very next track on this Elvis on stage album is his cover of Proud Mary. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you are enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. Wouldn't that be nice? If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at How Good It Is. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or Woo, so many options. You can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you may find a few extra bits, and this week you're going to find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show, and next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when our lips are sealed. 
Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.